Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to Monster Legend Podcast. I'm your host, Tanner. And this episode is Missouri. Hope you have a great Sunday weekend and a good Friday on Good Friday. And sorry about the noise, but it's my cats and dogs here while I record this. But uh, happy Monday. I hope everyone's staying safe and healthy. And if you're sick, hope you recover. Let's get started on these monsters. The first monster. I will talk about is known as the Mud Lake Monster in Missouri. And here is a article about it from the Harwood Independent on September 19th, 1895, titled Surfing a Mud Lake. Wild story from Western Missouri started by a fisherman. St. Joseph, Missouri, September 14th. The serpent in Mud Lake, south of the city, has been seen again, this time by Anderson McCoy, a brother of policeman McCoy. The serpent has been seen a number of times during the past summer, and several times it has been caught in nets by fishermen, but broke through the nets, leaving a hole large enough for a horse to pass through. The fishermen have not been seen, have not been able to land it. McCoy has a strong boat, which he uses to hunt ducks on the lake in the season when they are plentiful there. He was out in this boat a few days ago when something struck it and he declared it was not 10 feet into the air. When the boat came down again, McCoy saw the serpent swirling in the water a short distance away. He could not see its size or shape but saw enough of it to know that it is of huge size. His brother's boat had been struck a number of times but no injury resulted. The fishermen at the lake are constantly considerably excited about the presence of such a mysterious object in the water. McCoy thinks it is a large fish that got into the lake from the river when the water was high. That was from Crypto Mundo. And I think Lauren Coleman. Posted by Lauren Coleman back in 2009. freaking sub tank in here it's freaking rain it's gross it smells gross uh many newspaper stories in the united states during these 1800s into the early 1900s were sensational in all sense of the word tales are incredible and written era when journalism meant whatever soul papers so truth be damned but following stories are all have to do with giants or underground seas so they're worth telling again the most famous of these reports appeared in the April 5th, 1909 edition of the Arizona Gazette entitled Explorations in Grand Canyon. Explorer G.E. Kincaid 
discovered a huge underground citadel while routing on the Colorado River. Exploring a tunnel that stretched nearly a mile underground, Kinade found this citadel, which is filled with towers carved with some type of hieroglyphics and home to a stone statue that is described as resembling Buddha. Copper weapons lined the walls, but the most intriguing aspect of this ancient dwelling, worship place, tomb, were the mummies. All wrapped in a dark fabric, the mummies were supposedly more than nine feet tall. To feed the fire of a conspiracy and keep anyway, anyone from finding the giants of the Citadel themselves, the United States government allegedly closed the area of the canyon from public view. But this well-known story of American giants isn't alone. The New York Times reported a nine-foot-tall skeleton of a man discovered in a mound near Maple Creek, Wisconsin in December 1897. The Times also carried the story strange skeletons found near Lake Devlin, Wisconsin. It's May 4th, 1912 issue. Skulls of giant skeletons excavated from a mound had a mute resemblance to the head of the monkey. But an April 9th, 1885 story in the New York Times titled Missouri's Berry City, a strange discovery in a coal mine near Mulberry, revealed a find that predated the supposed Citadel in the Grand Canyon by 24 years. Mulberry, the largest city in Randolph County, Missouri, had a population of 6,108 in the 1880s. Coal miners, sinking a shaft 360 feet deep, broke into a cavern revealing a wonderful buried city. Oracle claimed, lava arches stretched across the roof of the cavern looming over the street of an ancient city, which are regularly laid out and enclosed by walls of stone, which is cut and dressed in a fairly good, although rude style of masonry. Workers alone with Marlboro City recorded David Coates and Marlboro City Marshal George Keaton inspected this site and found a 30 by 100 feet hall and cavern filled with stone benches and hand tools. Further search the clothes, statues, and images made of composition closely resembling bronze, lacking luster, the article read. Explorers discovered a stone fountain in a wide court still pouring perfectly pure water into its basin. But it was what lay behind beside the fountain that interested the people exploring the site. Lying beside the foundation of the fountain were portions of the skeleton of a human being. According to the article, the bones of the leg, the bones of the leg measured the femur four and one half feet, the tibia four feet and three inches, showing that when alive, the figure was three times the size of an ordinary man, best of a wonderful muscular power and quickness. The skull, the story reported, was shattered. Bronze tools, granite hammers, metallic saws, and flint knives were scattered all around. They are not so highly polished, nor so accurately made as those now finished by our best mechanics, but they show skill and elements of an advanced civilization that are very wonderful, according to the article. A floor sent 12 hours. Explorers spent 12 hours in the Berry City and resurfaced only after the oil and their lamps burned low. No end to the wonders of the discovery was reached, the article stated. A further extended search will be made in a day or two. No record of the extended search could be found. Dr. Tom Spencer, a professional in the Department of History, Humanities, Philosophy, and political science at Northwest Missouri State University said that 
because a printing story the newspaper tried to forget it. A lot of the time, I think these stories were written based entirely off hearsay and little or no direct on-site reporting, he said. As the story grew, the details got more and more outrageous. He equates it to a childhood game where children sit in a circle and one child whispers a story into another's ear. And by the time the story completes the circle, it was completely different. If you recall something, the finished story bore little resemblance to the original story, he said. My guess is one element of the story is factual, like the strange shaft formation or a lawn femur was found, and it became more and more embellished as it went around the journalistic circle at the time. So what happened to the famous Berry City under Mulberry, Missouri? Were two stories like this predarkly at the time, and they usually disappear quietly before because someone goes to investigate and there's nothing to it, Spencer said. In order to avoid the embarrassment, newspapers just don't say anything else about it. However, Moberly resident John W. wants to find out for certain. Myself and several friends have researched the article archived at the New York Times, John said. The article discusses coal miners finding a crystal city with several advanced features as well as the bones of what can only be called a giant. John and his group plan to investigate the claim of an underground city. We have found the mine. Our hopes are to take a field trip and find an underground city. Maybe we can exit the mine, he said. We have been we have driven by, by and a site exists. You can still see remnants of the old access road through the field. It would appear this mine has not been in use since the time period of the news article. Marbury calls itself the Magic City. Hopefully John and his crew can discover just how magic it is. It's gonna be a space penguins. This is the next story. Says monster. So giants in underground, there were giants living in underground city in Missouri, and there was a giant surfing in Mud Lake in Missouri. Next up, we got some space penguins. In the winter of 1967, a no-nonsense Missouri farmer had a run-in with a horde of strange, scurry entities from outer space that one could only describe as resembling green space penguins. On a bone-chilling morning of February 14, 1967, a 64-year-old farmer by the name of Claude Edwards woke up to attend his duties on a remote parcel of land near Discumbia, Missouri. As the sun rose low on the horizon, Edwards bundled to face a bitter day, never imagining that he was about to have a face-to-face -face encounter with the unknown. Edwards was a simple, hard-working, salt-of-the-earth Midwesterner had no time for any kind of foolishness regarding aliens, flying saucers, or the like. So as his warm boots tramped across the icy rock-strewn slope that took him from his home to his barn, nothing could have shocked him more than to see what happened see what appeared to be a UFO sitting in one of his nearby fields. Edwards stated that before he saw the, this unusual object, the first thing he noticed was that all his cattle in his each field were gazing in the same direction, 
Intrigued, Edward followed their stairs through a grove of trees and was astonished to see what he described as a massive, grayish-green, mushroom-like object, which was perched atop a circular tube in a meadow adjacent to his barn. Almost as if on autopilot, the farmer continued to the barn, his eyes never leaving the UFO. He set down the feed bucket he'd been hefting and latched the door shut. With his, bond, with his barn secured, Edwards then turned back towards the peculiar object occupying his field and that's when he saw something he would never forget. A group of tiny, strange creatures hastily swarming beneath the object. Edwards estimated that he was separated from the odd entities by about 70 feet of land, two wire fences, and a smattering of cows. The Godsey farmer was not pleased by the fact that his cows were being spooked or that his property was being trespassed on, even if said trespassers happened to hail from out of this world. A farmer, no doubt fueled by a combination of curiosity and adrenaline, climbed the first gate and started walking directly towards the ostensibly alien interlopers. As Edwards reached the second gate, the diminutive creatures began moving in an even more agitated fashion. Edwards would later describe these miniature monsters as being approximately 3 feet in height and having a grayish green complexion, much like their ship. Although based on his own drawing, it would seem that these being erred on the greenest side a bit. Also, based on Edwards' sketch, it would seem that these Either these beings had no hands or that their arms were moving too swiftly for Edwards to discern the shape of the appendages. Edwards also claimed that these animals were either wearing goggles or had large, wide-set black eyes. They also had dark protuberances with their noses and mouths ought to have been. Whether or not he believed the protrusions to be a natural part of the physical features or some sort of protective or possibly breathing apparatus is not clear. Although the connection may be attentive at best when hearing a description of the Tuscumbia aliens, it is difficult not to have evoked memories of the counter reported by a pair of Finnish lumberjacks in 1971. The allegedly alien life form that they ran into on the wintry day near Kunskela was a small, almost lighter than air creature, which would have come to be known as the Kunala humanoid. This being was said to be clad in a green colored protective suit similar to creatures that Edwards bore witness to. This, that is assuming, of course, that the things that Edwards saw were wearing anything at all. Edwards watched in wonder as these bizarre creatures buzzed back and forth directly beneath the odd device. Arms swinging frantically at their sides, he later claimed that these invaders resembled little green penguins with no visible, no visible neck. 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 Whatever. Edwards also stated he could, could not clearly discern what manner of locomotion they were employing with their lower extremities. At this point, Edwards, like any primal man defending his property minus weapons, picked up a pair of bulky rocks and approached what at this point he was convinced was a UFO. In fact, Edwards would later state that the, his intentions was to use the rock to throw it 
after device and puncture holes in its side in order to prevent it from taking off. As a farmer got within 15 feet of the mushroom and the androgenes, he was abruptly stopped by some sort of force field. Edwards claimed that he, would, he could neither see or tangibly feel it, but the pressure and visible barrier emitted was unmistakable. According to Edwards, in quote, I thought I was going right up to it. I got up there, and there it was. I just walked up against the wall. End quote. It was then that Edwards, who would eventually sketch the doomed vehicle, got his first good look at the soundless, glinting vessel. He would later describe the metallic surface of the vehicle as being smooth and seamless, even going so far as to compare it to shiny silk. He estimated that the curved top of the craft was about 18 feet in diameter, nearly 8 feet at its apex. The stern-like tube that supported the object was evidently made of the same material as the dome top stood not much higher than the beams beneath it. At this point, the perplexed farmer could only discern evenly spaced oval portals, about 12 inches long and 12 inches apart, situated about the lower rim of the saucer. Edwards would insist that these portals did not seem to function as windows and could see a dazzling array of colors radiating from each of the ovals. The colored lights oscillated as if they were spinning behind the portals. Edwards described the craft. Quote, the object just looked like a big shell, grayish green looking outfit, and underneath there were sh- oblong holes where the lights were coming out. They were so bright you couldn't see what you couldn't see when you get up there, as if a color wheel was turning inside the thing. End quote. We all know real life can suck sometimes, and your boss accidentally seeing you in your underpants on Zoom last week doesn't help any. That's why Reluctantly Codependent Sisters, the Shira and Rashalia, keep you enthralled and in stitches every week with their podcast, Legendary Africa. Every Monday and Friday, we take you on a journey of mythical lands, magical objects, and monstrous creatures, both ancient and modern. Find Legendary Africa on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you feed your ears. And remember, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Anxiously, the rocket man of the land backed off about 10 feet, hurried one of the rocks, then hurled one of the rocks he had gathered at the mobile object. The rock bounced off to the impenetrable barricade noiselessly and landed on the ground. Edward then threw his second rock with even more force, but this one just skipped over the object like a stone over water for landing in the field behind the US. UFO. As long as he, as soon as he lobbed the second stone, the squiggling green critters swiftly disappeared behind the shaft supporting the craft, presumably into an access portal that was concealed from the farmer. It was then that the strange UFO tilted towards him not once, but twice. On the third launch, lurch, the UFO actually began silently ascending off the frozen earth. According to Edwards, the flying mushroom soared skyward at tremendous speed before it leveled off and began heading towards St. Elizabeth, which is located northeast of Tuscumbia. The vehicle vanished within moments, leaving behind a puzzled Edwards in a pasture full of befundled bovines. Edwards later encapsulated his fantastic encounters to UFO investigator Ted Phillips. 
end quote. The whole thing took over five minutes, maybe ten. I've never seen anything like it. It looked like shiny silk or something. I couldn't tell. I was going to tell, though, if I could have hit it with the, that rock, end quote. One detail that would seem to add a stroke of veracity to this admittedly bizarre account is the fact that Claude Edwards was a seasoned man of the land and who stood very who stood to gain very little except to except for the ridicule of his peers. By admitting to the potentially harrowing event and fact of a Phillips was introduced to Edwards through his brother, the farmer refused to utter a word about the incident. So the young researcher pledged to protect the farmers amenity, which he did until Edward's death. Phillips described his first encounter with Edwards. Quote, when I arrived at the farm, we visited for several minutes, gaining his confidence that I couldn't that I wouldn't reveal his name or location or location until his death. He didn't like talking about the sighting at first, but became more comfortable as we discussed the weather and farming. I asked him to relive the event in real time and we began on his front porch which faces the large barn near the landing area. End quote. The fact that the farmer never tried to squeeze an ounce of publicity or make a penny in profit from this strange Valentine's Day experience has led many investigators to conclude that there will be no motivation for a prank on the part of Edwards. In further support of Edwards' claims, it is the uncanny trace evidence left behind in the field where the UFO had landed. Phyllis, who arrived to interview Edwards on after these events in question was able to photograph the effects the UFO had on the field including the spot where he, the sport tube had met the soil. Phillips explained, quote, when I arrived at the site the traces were still quite visible. It was one meter in diameter and a slightly irregular circle where the shaft had rested. The soil was extremely dehydrated in contrast with the surrounding soil, end quote. This will be the last encounter that Edwards ever reported with these decular space penguins and their mushroom-shaped UFO. But I say it's safe bet that as stepped out of this modest home at the crack of dawn to begin his work every morning, he would never do without looking out at the field with some apprehension, perhaps just a bit of anticipation. What's up guys? I'm gonna get this next story um, lined up. You guys know where you can find me. Uh I said that later. But um listen to um the Screaming Choice Show. It's great. If I'm an anchor. And it's it's a great episode on the what's it called what's the thing that's going on now? The COVID nineteen. Yeah. Sorry. Kind of work 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 work. Yeah, the Screaming Choice Show. You can find it on Anchor by FM. What? The Momo. Momo, the Missouri Monster. On July 19th, 1972, a 20-man search party was organized in the small town of Louisiana, Missouri to track down the huge, black, hairy beast that was being reported by local residents. Louisiana's police chief, Shelby Ward, was afraid that nervous residents would start shooting the monster and hit a local by mistake. The media whipped up the frenzy about the monster and the quiet, unassuming community 
was launched into the national spotlight. The press humorously dubbed the poorly bile-smelling creature Momo, which stood for the Missouri Monster. But local residents found frightening encounters anything but funny. The Missouri Monster Scare actually began on July 11, 1972, which is my dad's birthday. The first encounter with the creature occurred on the outskirts of Louisiana, the base of Marzoff Hill. An eight-year-old boy named Terry Harrison and his brother Wiley, who was five, were playing with their dog in the woods at the edge of the yard. Suddenly, an older sister, Doris, who was 15, who was inside the house, heard them screaming. She ran to look out of the bathroom window and saw something standing by a tree. It was six or seven feet tall, black and hairy. She said, quote, It stood like a man, but didn't look like one to me. End quote. She began crying and ran to the other room to call her mother on the telephone. Both Doris and Terry got a good look at the monster and agreed that its face could not have been seen because of the mass of hair that covered its body. The creature seemed to have no neck and it was flecked with blood, likely from the dead dog that it was carrying under its arm. The smell of the creature was said to have been horrendous and it may have been this order that made the Harrison dog violently sick a short time after the incident. The dog's eyes grew red and it vomited for hours afterward. At 4 o'clock p.m., Edgar Harrison, children's father, and a deacon in the local Pentecostal church returned home from his job at the town waterworks. He found no monster, but he did find a brush beating down where the children said the creature had been standing. He also found faint footprints in the dust and a few black hairs scattered about. That same afternoon, a woman who lived about three blocks away from Harrison's, Mrs. Clarence Lee, reported that she heard animals sound outside her home. Not long afterwards, she allegedly spoke with a local farmer whose dog had disappeared, remembering the Harrison's children report. She wondered if the monster had taken it. On July 14th, Edgar Harrison was conducting a regular prayer meeting at his home and soon after it ended, heard clanging sounds. Likely someone was throwing rocks into the metal water reservoir on top of Marzoff Hill. The reservoir was the attraction for the neighboring children, but it's unlikely that any of them would have been playing there at that hour. As he listened closely to the sounds, he heard one especially loud ring and an animal-like growl. The sound came closer and closer and was so loud that his family came running out of the house. They urged him to leave the neighborhood, but Harrison wanted to see what was making that sound. Finally, he agreed to leave, and as he drove down Allen Street, he met about 40 people, some of them carrying guns, who were on their way to investigate the sounds at the reservoir. For some reason, Harrison shouted, Here it comes! And, and the entire crowd turned away and ran. A number of people reported hearing strange cries and screams at night, but by the time the police officers Jerry Floyd and John Winokur arrived on the scene to investigate, they found nothing out of the ordinary. Later that evening, Harrison and several friends explored Marzoff Hill and found an old building from which a strong and unpleasant odor lingered. Harrison described it as a moldy, horse smell or a strong garbage smell. In the days that followed, he and others would experience the same smell around areas where the bizarre sounds were heard. 
creature continued to be seen in days that followed, leading to Chief Ward's monster hunt on July 19th. The posse included Edgar Harrison and State Conversation Officer Gus Artis, and they covered Mazov Hill and the surrounding area using two-way radios, but found nothing. All, while it was taking place, residents reported animal sounds in other parts of town. On July 20th, more investigators joined the search and again covered the area behind the Harrison house and on along Marzoff Hill. They found trampled brush, signs of digging, and large tracks that were more than 10 inches long. Handprints were found pressed into the dry, hard soil, which inve- investigators were convinced it would have taken immense pressure to make. They also smelled the beast leaving that it was close, but saw nothing. On July 21st, the t- monster was seen again, this time on the Great River Road, which runs along the Mississippi River. Alice Miner, who lived on the road, was sitting in front of his home late in the evening. It was very dark and suddenly his bird dog began to growl. Miner switched on a powerful flashlight that he used for hunting and spotted a monster about 20 feet away from him, standing in the middle of the road. He later told reporters that it had hair as black as coal and that he could not see its face with the hair on his head on down to his chest. As soon as he threw the light on it, he recalled, it whirled, this quote, this quote, it whirled and took off that away, end quote. He did not report the sighting to the police, but he did call, call Gus Artist, the local conservation officer. By now, national publicity was turning Louisiana to a three-ring circus. People were driving in from surrounding states, hoping to get a large look at the creature. Edgar Harrison had become obsessed with finding a solution to the monster mystery. His family refused to come home again, take up residence at a restaurant the family owned, and so his house was turned into a monster outpost. The phones rang constantly. Meanwhile, Harrison had taken a leave of absence from his job at the waterworks to hunt the monster full-time. In the company of his friends and investigators, camped out at the foot of Martov Hill for 21 straight nights. While he never saw the monster, he did hear and smell it know that whenever the searchers were onto something, they were overwhelmed by the terrible smell. During the last week of July and into the early days of August, more prints were found south of town. More tracks were discovered on the early morning of August 3rd at a farm of Mrs. and Mrs. Bill Siddharth who lived just northwest of the town. In the middle of the night, they heard a high-pitched howling in the yard and ran outside with flashlights to see what was going on. In the middle of their garden, they found four large prints. Sardars quickly called his hunting buddy, Clyde Penrod, drove over and made a plaster cast of the print. Penrod, who was an avid outdoorsman, was followed by the whole affair, with tracks being 20 feet away from anything else. You can't understand how they could have been made. They began abruptly in the center of the garden and ended just as mysteriously. It looked as if the creature had disappeared in the center of the garden and then vanished. No tracks were found anywhere else on the property. There was no sign of that any prankster could have made them either. This was the last encounter with the creature and perhaps it is fitting. The monster flap ended on such an inexplicable note. Discovered the strange tracks at the Sunday's farm ended the Momo sightings and encounters in Louisiana, and the story had become a little more than remembered across the, in the area today. There are some, though, who are likely never to forget the summer of 1972, 
For those people and for those with an interest in unexplained, those days in July will always remain a mystery. another episode of Monster Legends Podcast Monster Legends of Missouri I hope you enjoyed this episode and hope you enjoyed other videos or episodes I've done or will do um, next time on next Monday um, you can find me if you want to listen to any more episodes you can find me on Anchor I see you. Go to my website. It's on app. Oh. Monsters Legends Pod C dot dot com forward slash Monster Legends Monster Legend Podcast where you can listen to all episodes and find my social medias all on that website. Uh don't worry. I will put I will put the link description from it but yeah it's where you can find my email and social it's bringing a hold of me yeah shout out to um some of my good friends in the podcast world uh Troy uh Tommy Hawkins we started a new uh, podcast this week, I believe, and that's all. Bullshit. This is, yeah. Uh, brains apart. I'm brain fart right now. Anyway, thank you for listening, and share with your friends, and tell them about it. And let me know if you want to be a guest, or if you want me to be a guest in your podcast. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legend Podcast. Or to find more information about Monster Legend Podcast, go to monsterlegendpodcast.com or anchor.fm forward slash monsterlegendpodcast. There you can find all episodes and platforms on which the podcast is on, which you can describe, subscribe to. You also can email me with questions that will be answered on the show. Thank you. Thank you.